Last week, in uh, defining biblical marriage, we returned to Genesis, uh, where it says that a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. (coughs) Uh, Again, all of this inspired by uh, a passage in uh, Colossians chapter 3. It says uh, uh, that wives should submit to their husbands, and husbands should love their wives, and and we have been <coughs> sort of taking all those pieces and, and breaking them down. We've considered the sacred pieces of this equation. We've talked about submission. We've talked about gender. We've talked about marriage. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you uh, really for the next two weeks about that last part of that phrase in Genesis, um, that business of being one flesh. So <coughs> if you think you've had an awkward job, Try getting up before your church family and talk about sexuality for two weeks in a row. It's a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do because uh, here's the thing. We all know that when Christians talk about sexuality, the the world around us uh, is often antagonistic towards what we have to say. But also, we as Christians are not terribly comfortable talking about these things out loud. Uh, I remember years ago, In Seattle, Lisa and I were leading a young marriage class, and we decided to do a study on marriage sexuality based on the Song of Solomon. If you ever read the Song of Solomon, you will know what I'm talking about. But uh, interesting thing about that study, in the in the oh three or four years that we led that group, best attended class I ever taught. Zero discussion. Nobody was willing to say anything. They were all interested in the class, but nobody wanted to comment. So you're lucky this morning. I'm preaching, so you won't be expected to comment or uh, to add your two cents. You just uh, get to, to, to listen and, and see if you think I'm, I'm getting it right. There's a, there, there's a good reason for some of that awkwardness. There's an appropriate discretion. There's a sense of privacy that we apply to these issues, and that is, that is a good thing. Um, but we also have a need for a healthy dialogue about human sexuality because the culture around us is producing endless information about sexuality, and most of it is terrible. It's bad information. In other words, as taking, borrowing from, from Colossians again, the world is filling up the culture with deceptive philosophies about human sexuality. And it, we have a responsibility, really, to try to answer that, to try to, try to talk about these things from a biblical perspective. Because the world can't stop talking. So originally I had planned to just do one week on human sexuality, uh, the holiness of sexuality, 
Um, it turned into two weeks because as I started listing different uh, deceptive philosophies, I quickly realized that we would be here all afternoon. And so I broke it into two sermons, and, and even then, we're really just scratching the surface dealing with the most uh, 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 common deceptive philosophies. Let me begin with this one, deceptive philosophy that we encounter. <coughs> the Bible views sexuality as a sort of necessary evil, limited in purpose to procreation. Kind of a puritanical view of sexuality that we don't hear all that often anymore uh, in churches. Uh, although it does come up on occasion, we, we hear of uh, different preachers who are sort of taking this stance. I, I think part of it is, you know, we... We're so overwhelmed by all of the negative pictures of human sexuality that we encounter in the culture that sometimes we tend to kind of go to the other extreme. We're going to place all these limitations on it. But more than a principle that's been taught in our churches, this is kind of an assumption that the culture makes about how Christians view their sexuality. Um, Part of that is that uh, the, the church is relatively silent when we're talking about sexuality. We, we, don't, we don't really talk about, uh, we don't present the positive models that the Bible gives us for human sexuality. We tend to present biblical prohibition. So we'll talk about the rules. We'll, t we'll talk about the boundaries that we want to place around sexuality. And so... Uh, a lot of people have the misconception that those boundaries is all that the church has. It's all that the Bible offers. The truth is that the Bible views sexuality as sacred, as procreative, as pleasurable, and as healthy. It is, in fact, sacred. This whole idea of becoming one flesh is a very poetic description of human sexuality, but it also implies that this is more than a physical act. There is a physical and emotional and spiritual union in human sexuality. It is the ultimate form of intimacy reserved for this relationship of marriage. Marriage is the context. And in terms of how Scripture describes this, if we were to take a purely biblical view, anything, any kind of sexuality that occur occurs outside of that marriage outside of marriage is, is labeled by Scripture as either fornication, adultery, or sexual immorality. In fact, in ideal terms, in the biblical world, there is no distinction between marriage and sex. Se our sex sexuality is viewed as the consummation of marriage. And so, and I, under ideal circumstances, it is uh, the expression of our sexuality that, that finalizes our marriage agreement. The Bible also views sex our sexuality as procreative. Now, that should be kind of a no-brainer, right? Well, no, duh. That's, that's how that works. Where do babies come from? Well, that's, you know, we have to, this explanation. The problem is that the culture around us has worked very, very hard to separate sexuality from procreation, to make them two completely separate things, so that our sexuality can be purely sort of recreational and a form of self-expression. The Bible doesn't limit our sexuality to procreation. It just realizes our procreative potential. 
when we are expressing our human sexuality. That men and women are designed to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with their offspring. Children are meant to spring from this beautiful union, this perfect intimacy. Interesting thing is, even outside of the church, the more that we connect our sexuality with procreation, the more moral we tend to be about our sexuality. And the more we separate sexuality from procreation, the, the more we tend to defile our sexuality. <coughs> so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and like, likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, per except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul goes on uh, again to extol the virtues of singleness, which in... in um, in a sense, is really his main theme in the passage. He's basically saying, I'm a single guy. It works really well for my ministry. If you can do the same, more power to you. I think it's a great idea. But if you can't, he says, get married. He says it's better to marry than to burn with desire. He recognizes that, that our human sexuality is sacred, that it's procreative, he also looks on this sexuality within the context of marriage as the answer to this passion, the answer to this desire. And in that context, we can pursue that pleasure. And it's healthy to do so. This surprises a lot of people because of our preconceptions about how the, how the Bible is going to handle human sexuality. But really, the Bible is quite overt, quite open about human sexuality. In Proverbs uh, chapter 5, 18 and 19, it says, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Song of Solomon chapter 1, says, let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. There's uh, some ancient Hebrew bride and bridegroom language that's going on here. Essentially, uh, what she's saying is, marry me quick and take us to our marriage bed. Now, if you read the rest of Song of Solomon, it gets racier from there. That is the tame part of the whole poem, right? Just gets crazier. As a matter of fact, over the centuries, theologians have been so uncomfortable with the presence of Song of Solomon in the canon of Scripture. 
that they try to explain it away as a metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel, or perhaps Christ and the church. That has always made it even more awkward for me to read through it, because it is filled with some very poetic, very thinly veiled descriptions of how it is that this, this young couple, these young lovers, are going to pleasure one another and enjoy one another. So metaphor or not, there is this expression of human sexuality right there in the scripture that celebrates the pleasure and the intimacy and the health of human sexuality. That within the context of marriage, within these moral limitations the scripture has created, the Bible views sexuality as extremely positive. That doesn't mean that everyone's prepared to accept that context and those limitations. And so another deceptive philosophy we encounter is this. The imposition of moral limits on sexuality is repressive and unhealthy. So ever since Freud coined the term sexual repression, Western society has been transfixed by this idea. And the idea is basically this. There is something inherently unhealthy about not expressing our sexual desire no matter what it is. Well, even in secular society, this is challenged quite often. Because there are some expressions of human desire that are inherently unhealthy. Even Freud would draw some lines around sexual behavior. We do not endorse rape. We do not endorse incest. There are, there are lines to be drawn. There are moral limitations. No matter what your background, if you're a, a, a sane, decent person, you have some moral limitations around sexuality. We seem, however, as a society, to be losing our grip on the fact that not every desire we have, not every impulse we experience is inherently good. We understand sin to very often be a distortion of something that God created as good has been manipulated and changed by evil to turn it into something bad. Well, human sexuality is open territory for the world to manipulate the definitions, to change something very good, very blessed, very sacred into something dark. Now, I want to say before I, I move any further forward here, my intention is not to shame us. Not to shame us about our sexual sin. Because there is absolutely nothing that is beyond the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. That's not the point. The point is that sexual sin is particularly powerful in our lives 
because the temptations are hardwired. In other words, we are created with a desire for the connectivity, for the intimacy, for the pleasure of human sexuality. God made us that way. But because that's hardwired within us, we can be especially manipulated around themes that deal with our sexuality, around our expressions of sexuality. In this sense, uh, our sexuality is a bit like an addiction. Because the more we act on that desire, the more we cultivate that desire. It doesn't satisfy it except for the moment. The more we participate, the more we want. And so it continues to grow. Sexual expression releases endorphins and oxytocin in our brain. Gives us feelings of euphoria. Makes us feel a deeper intimacy with our partner. In an ideal world, in a biblical world, in a biblical model, all of this is part of that perfect human sexual expression. It's part of the oneness these things are supposed to draw us together. In other words, to put it in somewhat crass terms, husbands and wives are meant to become addicted to one another. This is why uh, even in that beautiful love poem, Song of Solomon, where we're talking about all these expressions of uh, of physical love and physical intimacy, both the male and the female voice in that passage caution the reader, do not awaken desire before its time. Why is that? Well, well, because the more we participate in it, the more we want it. Don't awaken that desire until the time is right, until, until you're ready to enter into that relationship where it will be sacred and holy. The truth is that sexuality, without a moral context, inevitably becomes predatory. That's just kind of the way that it works. It's the way that human nature works. You need to understand that prior to the influence of Christianity, sexuality, as it was expressed in Western culture, was incredibly predatory. It was dangerous. It was difficult. It was ugly. Now, in the Roman Empire, wives were expected to be chaste. They were expected to be monogamous. But it wasn't for any moral cause. It was because he had to protect bloodlines. And so wives were expected to, to have relations only with their husbands so that his bloodline would be protected. Husbands, however, particularly men of means in the Roman Empire, could impose themselves on any underling. They regularly had mistresses. They visited prostitutes. They could impose themselves on their servants, men and women, boys and girls alike. didn't matter. And they could do so with impunity. As a matter of fact, and I, I hope, hope more of you will join our class on first century Christianity. As a matter of fact, one of the appeals of first century Christianity was the fact that they had a 
moral ethic around sexuality that freed a lot of people from this broken system. This was particularly bad for women. And you need to understand that that's a history that goes all the way back. We read through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is often criticized for being sort of anti-feminist. The reality is the Old Testament provided protections for women that did not exist in other ancient cultures. Because sexuality without a moral structure is predatory. And we know it. Even the culture knows it. We would not have a Me Too movement in American culture if we didn't recognize that human sexuality was predatory without morals. We would not register sex offenders in this country if we didn't recognize that sexuality without a moral construct is predatory. We recognize a need for limits. We have simply said no to the limits that the scriptures provide. And so we live in a culture where dating has very little to do with marriage and a great deal to do with pursuing intimacy without marriage. Men in our culture regularly describe sex their sexuality as a game. They talk about how many bases they got to and whether or not they scored. We should be offended by this kind of language, but it is so commonplace, we barely give it a second thought. Yet the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We have to ask the question, in the midst of a society that thinks that we're backward and, and nutty and, and old-fashioned, we have to ask the question, who benefits when human sexuality is ripped from its biblical context? The Bible model that our culture dismisses as old-fashioned and unrealistic and repressive is this. Sex is sacred. It is good. It is pleasurable. It is healthy. It is purposefully intimate. And when we observe it in the context for which it was created, the context of marriage. We honor God, we honor ourselves, we honor our mate, we cultivate oneness, we welcome procreation as an implication of our sexuality. We have absolutely no risk of sexually transmitted diseases. And we enjoy an expectation and an accountability to fidelity, forsaking all others till death do us part. I know, it sounds awful, doesn't it? it? sounds terrible. Why would anybody want that? And yet, here's one that we, we have to address, a deceptive philosophy that crops up right in the church. Christians can pattern their relationships after the world as long as they save sexual intercourse for marriage. Now perhaps this uh, notion arises 
because of our reluctance to discuss human sexuality. And in our reluctance, we have a tendency to give rise to rules about what we can and can't do as Christians without any context, without sort of describing the positive view that Scripture has towards our sexuality. And so many young people get caught up in the game of this sort of tortured morality. How close can we walk to the line? How much can we be like our worldly friends and companions? How, how far can we go without stepping over the line and, and being out of God's uh, grace, favor? And Jesus Jesus talks quite a bit about human sexuality, and one of the things he says is that for us men to, to look on a woman with lust in our hearts is, is to commit adultery. Which means a lot of us men who thought we were never guilty of adultery are actually guilty of adultery. intent, again, is not to establish what the Bible rules are about our sexuality, but to provide a picture of what healthy biblical sexuality is. And we are held to a high account. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, for this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Here's the truth. We as Christians are called to standards of honor and modesty and chastity that reflect the sacred nature of our sexuality. It's not merely a matter of memorizing a list of thou shalt nots. There aren't really all that many to be had in Scripture because Scripture defines human sexuality in positive terms. It invites us to live within those positive terms. I remember I had a friend in college who started dating an older woman who was not a Christian and she was sort of pressing him on this issue and he came to me and he said, I can't find anything in Scripture that says, this says we can't have premarital sex. I said, really? You're looking for that term? Is that, is that what you're doing? Searching Scripture for a term that didn't exist when the Scriptures were written? Is that what you're doing? What the Scriptures do is they describe how it's supposed to work. And then, yes, they do give us some thou shalt nots that's not the main focus. Christians have to structure our approach to marriage and sexuality not based on the way that the world does it or the way that the world thinks about it, but on Jesus Christ, on the creation, on the creative intent, on the order of God. What does that mean? It means, for one thing, that we will honor marriage as the context of human sexuality. That we will uphold that standard 
for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ without embarrassment, without hesitation. That will be our standard. Not that we can't offer forgiveness and grace when it is required, and we will all require it, but this is the standard that we strive for, that we live for. Part of that, honestly, and I'm going to probably step on some toes here. I have in the past. Uh, I'll probably do it uh, a lot more in the future. We have to reserve courtship for a time when we're actually seeking a marriage partner. And I'll tell you why that is. And, and this is, I had, had fought many, many battles with my Christian friends on this issue. To date without being in that place and in that process of seeking a lifelong marriage partner is to awaken desires within ourselves that we are not prepared to do anything about. And dating, even among Christians, has too often become a process of seeking out intimacy that we will not be able to fulfill if we are to stay within the construct that we're provided. And yet, we live in this culture where middle schoolers and grade schoolers are all, all feel this enormous pressure to pair off, to become couples, to identify themselves in this way. I, I can guarantee you that the average middle schooler knows nothing about relationships and is completely unprepared for them. I counseled my own children when they were younger. Spend this time learning how to be good friends with people, boys and girls alike. Don't worry about the other stuff. Don't worry about romance. Don't worry about marriage. Don't worry about sexuality until you're actually ready to pursue that relationship. This matters because this is how we construct our lives around the ideal that we're striving for. It means that we will dress as though the most intimate parts of our beauty or our handsomeness are reserved for our spouse. I know modesty has become a hot-button issue in our culture. We try to tell women to be modest. We're, we're undermining them. There's very good research out there that a woman who shows too much skin triggers a part of a man's brain that causes him to regard her as an object. That's biology. That's what's happening. Now, is that her fault? Eh, no. Is, is he still responsible for his sexual morality? Of course he is. Why do, we, why do we walk so close to the line? Why do we play this game? Reserve your beauty for the one that God has chosen for you to be the appreciator of that beauty. 
In other words, folks, rather than skirting the line in regard to human sexuality, the object of this Christian life, when we're thinking about these issues, purpose, the thing that we must pursue is this. We must, as in all things, outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor to God, showing honor to moral character, showing honor to one another. The objective is not to take from each other, but to bless one another. The objective is is not to see how far we can indulge. The objective is to honor God's pattern, to live the life to be an example to the world around us whose ideas about sexuality are hopelessly broken. to be holy.